It's week six of 2018, and this week we're going to talk about every single type of operating system, whether it be Microsoft, Apple, Chrome, or Linux. We've got all those stories. We've also got uh, some fake news that we're going to get into, but more in the context of Chrome extensions. But that's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing this week? Hey, it's another exciting week of tech news. We've got uh, a good selection of stories this week, uh, you know, a handful of security, as is our want lately, and uh, a bunch of other cool things kind of spread across the various products out there. So like every week, we're going to move through, kind of learn about what's new and exciting and what we think about it, and... Hopefully you guys stay tuned through the end. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is week six of 2018, and uh, I just learned we're actually 10% through the year already. So um, hope you've uh, given up on your resolutions as I have. Uh, but we are, yeah, ready to move in. And the, the first article we're going to cover today um, is about High Sierra. So I can I can be honest when I say that I didn't read much past the headline because uh, <laughs> I'm not installing that monstrosity on my beautiful new MacBook Pro here. But uh, but the headline here from MacRumors.com is that macOS High Sierra 10.13.4 displays warnings when opening 32-bit apps as part of Apple's phase-out plan. But, Don, you were telling me before that this is not bad news. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's so much security news that's out there lately that when you see a headline like this, you're like, oh, macOS displays a warning. What, what's going on now? But this is actually part of, of Apple's plan phase out of 32-bit application support. And if you're not familiar with this, back in June, so June of 2017, Apple announced that they were going to be ending support for 32-bit applications in the App Store. And that uh, you basically needed to move to 64-bit applications. Now, if you're a developer, what that meant was that after a certain date, Apple would no longer allow you to update your app unless it was 64-bit. So if you still had a 32-bit, you had to, to switch it. Uh, if you didn't, uh, eventually customers would no longer be able to download the application. Now, if you're a customer, it may or may not actually impact you because it, it's really focused on what's in the App Store right now. Even when Apple phases it out of the App Store, there'll still be 32-bit app support in the OS, at least for a little while, right? I mean, one or two versions, more than likely. But the key takeaway here from this article and, and from the news that's going around right now is just to kind of remind you that, uh, you know, that time is coming. It's like in, um, it was a Game of Thrones, right? Winter is coming. Yeah. The 64-bit White Walkers are coming to kill us all, and, uh, and they'll be here <laughs> soon. So, uh, you know, kiss your 32-bit family goodbye. I made that really morbid, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, it got really <laughs> rough there for a second. I didn't know where to go with that. But, um, and, and <laughs> what was interesting, I, I'm reading on here, because my next question was going to be, does this affect iOS too? Uh, but this is saying that uh, in iOS 10, uh, they're basically doing that, that same kind of warning system uh, with the plan to phase out 32-bit in iOS 11. Well, so. So, so you're using like future tense, right? It's past tense. Like that, that's already happened uh, sure. in, in the iOS world. Uh, and and if you really think about it, like the iOS App Store, it's got a lot of great stuff in it. The Mac OS App Store, when you tell me, oh, I'm about to lose these apps, I'm, I'm going to lose, what, five? Five apps? Mm -hmm. Six? Maybe yeah. ten if somebody uploaded some since I looked last. So <laughs> it's not really that big of a deal. But if you depend on 32-bit apps and the developer is not updating them, you need to be looking for a replacement. 
and changing apps for anything that's like business critical can really be frustrating for end users. Uh, you know, as frustrating as being uh, uh, killed by, by a white, white walker, walker. Yeah, and sure. turned into Walking Dead. Well, um, <laughs> so the dragon glass of, uh, I'm not going to try to go keep going with this analogy, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I, I will say on my, on my phone recently, uh, I've, I've talked before how I have the amazing new iPhone X, which I still don't know if it's the iPhone 10 or the iPhone X, because there's no nine, I know there's an eight, <laughs> but a Roman numeral, but I don't know. So let's go, it's the iPhone X, um, and I had an app recently that I tried to open um, that was just you know backed up from um, from the uh, the update, the time machine. It's not time like an machine, old iTunes backup, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, and it said this app will not work on this device, and and uh, now that makes me think was that a um, software thing as opposed to a hardware yeah. thing. You know, it was one of the big selling points of mobile apps uh, in the early days, on Android as well, where they would say, look, you, you buy the app one time and you have it forever. It's not like desktop apps where you're constantly having to pay to keep them updated. Uh, here you buy it once. But what they fail to tell you is, hey, a, a lot of developers abandon their applications. And over time, as the OS has changed, they patch security holes, things break. And with iOS, it's actually happened more than once where they, they change the file paths of where certain applications were allowed to write data to and that broke a lot of applications. And I, I don't know, if I look at my, uh, I have an Android phone now, but I used to have an iPhone. Uh, and if you look at my purchase history, there's several apps that I bought over the years that don't work anymore uh, just because of the p file path change, right? Here we're changing 32-bit to 64-bit apps. That's a bigger deal. From the developer side, it's actually not that much work to convert your app over to 64-bit, but you have to do it. And if you're no longer supporting the app, that's not going to happen. So uh, on the desktop side, it's pretty much the same. They just have to go in and, and change some compile flags and, and recompile, do a little bit of testing. Uh, the programs that have the biggest problems are ones that use plugins or, or add-ons. And those plugins and add-ons, they can cause problems if they aren't updated to 64-bit also. That's when developers have a nightmare. But there, there is some work that has to be done. All the flash. All the probably. flash. That's yeah, right. well, for my money, I, I've always been an 8-bit guy. <laughs> Audio, uh, games, everything. So... Uh, I guess those those will continue to not work as we move forward. <laughs> uh, next up, sticking with Apple, um, we've got an article from the Tech Times, uh, which is obviously the, the biggest newspaper in tech. Um, how to disable iPhone throttling in Apple's latest iOS 11.3 beta. And so this has been something that's been talked about a lot, where Apple finally came out and basically admitted that, yes, we are throttling the older uh, older iPhones, but it is not uh, because we are just trying to push you to buy a new iPhone. Wink, wink. But uh, that wasn't, I didn't even wink. Yeah, I think I did the wrong digital eye. Digital yeah. wink. Um, yeah, can you, we can put that in and post. <laughs> but uh, they were doing it uh, bas because basically the, the newer iPhones, uh, uh, excuse me, the newer software has more strain on the older uh, iPhones. And so it was causing major battery drain. And if you're used to getting, you know, a full day out of your um, your battery and of, of your phone without having a charge, which is sad that that's the the standard that we now have. One whole day. That, yeah, I made it one day without having to find a battery uh, or a wall to plug into. That, yeah, if you just ran, you know, eleven point three or or you know uh, anything iOS eleven, your your phone would have just died in, in a matter of a couple mm -hmm. hours based on the things it had to do. So they were doing that as a a feature to you, but a feature that basically you couldn't turn off. But now. It looked like we looks like we found a way to turn yeah. that off. And you know, we we talked about this in an earlier podcast because you know I was kind of making fun of Apple. It, the the real challenge here is not the fact that they were throttling the phone, but that they didn't give you a choice, right? They they made the decision for you, which is their style of thinking differently. So um, in this scenario, they basically just said like we're going to choose to throttle your performance to preserve your battery life, and didn't give people the choice. So they said they came out and they said yes, we do this. 
but we're going to give you the choice. So what's significant here is that in the 11.3 beta, they finally put the choice in there. You actually do have a system preference that you can go in and set and tell it, hey, don't throttle my phone, and I'm okay if I only get 11 hours of usage or, or eight hours of usage or two hours of usage, right? It, it's up to you to pick and say, I'm okay with shorter battery life or I would rather be throttled to get better battery life. Uh, and a lot of people knew that Apple was going to release this. They said they were going to release it. We just didn't know when. Now we kind of know when. I, I say kind of because these betas, it's usually only a month or two before they actually make it to the phone. But it shows that Apple is pretty quick to respond to this one. They'll, they'll probably still get a class action lawsuit. But, but uh, at least they, they did act on what they said. Well, and I'm actually impressed, too, because initially um, just looking at this uh, kind of headline and, and scanning through, I was assuming that this was a hack, a workaround that someone had figured out a, a way to do this. But this is actually Apple coming out and responding. And, and, and they, did, uh, well, they did come out and say that we'll replace your, your battery as well um, for, what was it, $29 or something. So Which uh, that they could said help as well. But they said there's been a ton of demand for that. Like a, a yeah. lot of people have been going in for that battery. And you know they're the ones who said customers don't need to change their battery. We don't need to do a removal battery. And the other cell phone providers started to follow suit. Now I think they're seeing like, oh, customers do like to change their battery. Well, it depends. I mean, they, uh, they've obviously set up a scenario where they want you to replace your phone, if not every 12 months, every 24 months. You know, a lot of people skip yeah. that in-between cycle and just um, you know, do it when their phone contract comes up. But I think they're finding now with, hey, we're talking about a $1,000 phone. Yeah, I'm good with my iPhone 5 or I'm good with my iPhone 6. And, uh, and so we're, we're seeing that combination of not only uh, is the, the software uh, more demanding on the battery, but the battery has also been depleted from all those cycles over the years. And it certainly uh, doesn't live up to what it used to. So um, that's definitely fixed there. Does, does your phone now that you've gone, what, what are you on, the Galaxy? I'm on a Galaxy S8. And yeah. can you remove your battery? No, nope. And I, I think the last phone I had where I could change the battery was a... I might have my Galaxy S3. It was a while ago. Uh, but I, I liked it because I, I, I would buy two extra batteries. Mm -hmm. And when you go on a trip, you just take fully charged batteries. So when you ran out of battery, you just swap it out. Now you're at 100%. No, I've got to hook up to a battery or plug into a wall. It well, just... you see people walking around conferences now, and they've got those little, you know, the lipstick kind of thing that mm -hmm. like gets you one charge or, or two. But, you know, you've got this cord then hanging out of your pocket to where your battery uh, phone goes. But, I mean, the, the batteries in a cell phone, it's, that's pretty small. If you, you could drop a couple of those in your pocket very easily Absolutely. And, uh, and with did, a lot less weight. Did you see the power bank that Tim got? No. Uh, it's him, uh, one of the other guys here in the office. He got one that uh, it's designed to charge your MacBook. Oh, uh, and it's, I forget how many thousands of micro milliamps or whatever. It is a massive brick that weighs several pounds. Uh, but the fact that those products exist tells you there's a problem. The last few planes <laughs> I've been on, I've even had, you know, jacks that you could plug in. Well, mostly yeah. USB, but I've, I've had a couple with 110 jacks. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I kind of need to find out now where Tim thinks he's going for that long where he won't be you near know, power. He actually told me he was going yeah. to a conference where if you wanted to plug in, they charged you money for it. Wow. And it was cheaper to just buy this massive pack and take it with him. So, yeah. All right, but then you're that guy. I know. I'm, I'm lazy. I just don't want to carry on that did, weight. Did, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if Tim watches, but did, did Tim get a holster um, for the battery pack as well? I don't know. That would be what, what I want to see if he's He got. disguises it as a belt buckle. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> so next up, uh, switching gears with uh, but another uh, operating system uh, news article here. This one about Chrome OS 64. 64-bit, is that what we're talking about with six, the 64 and Chrome OS uh, 64? No, actually, it's version 64. I know, that's How are they on version 64? I thought they named things after <laughs> ice creams. and 
Uh, oh, but. well, so again, a, a good point here about this article because it's talking about Chrome OS, not Android. Uh, and Android is named after they use desserts. Numbers. Okay, they said, you know what we're going to do? <laughs> numbers are also creative. No one's done that. So anyway, <laughs> Chrome OS 64, uh, which can be whatever bit you like maybe, uh, hits stable uh, with tablet mode, screenshot, shortcut, and Android app improvement. So uh, you have Chromebook at home, right? Yeah, I got one in my backpack right oh. here behind me. But uh, uh, this one was funny. This came from Android Police, and the headline, I mean, they lead with, like, oh, it's Chrome OS 64, and it's got tablet mode screenshot, which I don't care about. I don't know about other people. Uh, I'm not taking a lot of screenshots on my tablet. But this one little byline here, the Android app improvements, that's the really significant thing. Uh, a lot of people have been speculating that Google is killing off Android on the tablet and that they fully expect Chrome OS to become the new Android tablet. Well, this is another nail in the coffin of Android on the, on the tablet. Um, you can already run Android apps on Chrome OS, but the problem is you can only run one at a time. If you open up a second Android app, the first one goes into the background and it pauses. So if you have it where like, it's supposed to be checking mail or something like that, it doesn't do it in the background. So you don't get background support. Well, in Chrome OS 64, you can now do windowed Android apps and go side by side and have them both running at the same time. So you can have active background tasks and split screen view, so multiple apps open at once. That's something that we've had in Android for a long time, but it's making it into Chrome OS, and it's more of just taking that Android app ecosystem and building it more into Chrome OS. So uh, last week we talked a little bit about Mac OS being able to run iPad apps. Chrome OS has been able to run Android apps for a long time. Now they're just doing it even better. And I, I think now that this feature is here, that, that's pretty much it for Android tablets. I, I don't think we're going to see any more Google Android tablets, and we'll probably start to see less and less third-party ones. So a couple questions here. When this says uh, Chrome OS 64 hits stable, is, mm -hmm. is this a beta? So in, in the Chrome OS world, there's actually like three different tracks you can follow. There's the Canary build, which okay. is the alpha, like everything's super experimental. And then there's the beta and dev builds, which are usually okay enough to run, but not to run in production. You wouldn't want your end users running it. In fact, if you go into the dev build mode, it disables some security features that's pretty bad. You don't want to run in that mode. Uh, so what they're saying here is that these features have now made it to the stable track. So there was a Chrome OS 64 Canary, and then a Chrome OS 64 uh, Beta, and now Chrome OS 64 Stable. Uh, so that, that's why they have to put that designation. So if you're buying there. a new one, it's going to come with, with this? You know, it probably won't, but the first time you run it, they update on their well, own. And so you'll, you'll have it within that first day. Now, do you know if Chrome OS is similar to what they've done with Android, where it's, it's open source and anyone can you know, put it on, on or create their own kind of versions of it for their devices as well? You know, uh, some of it they've open sourced, some of it they haven't. Okay. Uh, mainly the bootloader and, and BIOS is what they have in open source, but there are there are people who've created their own, like the C BIOS that you can install, uh, and, and C is an S-E-A instead of the letter C, because why not? Um, but you, you can do that and you can kind of run your own, but Chrome OS is completely free. It's really just running the Chrome web browser, which they have open sourced most of it in the form of Chromium. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of need for hackers to create some kind of third-party version of, of Chrome OS. If you wanted that, you could just format it and throw Linux on it. Uh, right, but if I bought a tablet that wasn't made by Google, it's going to uh, have Android still. 
Well, not necessarily. Like my my Chromebook back there is an Asus oh, Chromebook. Okay. Yeah. So HP, Dell, a lot of them they have Chrome OS Chromebooks now. Gotcha. Uh, and have for years. So if you buy an Android tablet, if you buy like a Samsung Galaxy Tab S3 or whatever, their their naming scheme is crazy. Uh, but if you have one of those, yeah, you can't stick Chrome OS on that because it's you know the, the hardware is just too different and the support's not there. Chrome OS still expects you to have a keyboard also. So if you have a tablet that doesn't have a keyboard. Chrome OS isn't exactly happy with that. So that, that's stuff they're still working on. Gotcha. And sorry, I was a little distracted on that one. I'm still trying to figure out this 64 thing not being 64-bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm really upset about that. I mean, it, it probably is 64-bit, but is. now i got to go look that up and see if it supports 32. And, and, and Anyway, um, so let's switch gears now to Microsoft and, and Windows. And um, we had a, a couple Windows uh, 10 and uh, Windows 10S-related uh, uh, articles here. This first one, uh, yeah, Windows 10S is becoming a mode, not a version. So uh, in the past, you had Windows 10, and then you had the Windows 10 kind of ARM edition. Um, and so Microsoft is changing its pricing, changing how this is all working. So um, hopefully you can shed some light on this for us. So we, we highlighted an article a few weeks ago about how in Windows 10S, you could only run apps from the Windows App Store. And they Both were hoping, yeah, you can run all two apps from the Windows App Store yeah. uh, on your on your tablet or laptop or whatever it was that you had that was running Windows 10s. And at the time, I, I made that same joke, you know, that there's <laughs> not a lot of apps there, and so you're effectively locking yourself down to an ecosystem that's empty. Um, so Microsoft made a few announcements this week that shuffled that up. Uh, one, which I thought was really bad, which was they were going to add progressive web app support to the Windows App Store. Now. Right now, if you want to put an app in the App Store, you've got to write an app. And Microsoft has found that if people have to exert even one bit of effort, they just skip the Windows App Store, and they yeah. do iOS and Android. Why bother with Windows? So, um, so they haven't seen a lot of success there. Progressive web apps are like the cheaters' world of web apps because they're just web pages. It's a web page disguised as an app. And so you go and you're like, oh, I'm going to download the CNN app, or I'm going to download the IT Pro TV podcast app. But in reality, all, all it is is the web page that comes up. You know, they don't work when you're offline and, and you see the content that's from the website. It's, it's no different than using a web browser. You still get an icon it, like, it because you're downloading icon. something yeah. from the app store. So they're basically making it where you can just check a box and say, it, yes, put my app in, <laughs> in the Microsoft ecosystem as well. Well, other app stores have tried this before, and what ends up happening is they might have, I, I think they have 10,000 apps right now, uh, you know, 9,995 of them are junk, but but they've got 10,000. When they enable progressive web apps, you'll see that number jump to 100,000, even 500,000 apps really, really quick, but they're all garbage. They're all just links to web pages. And that, there'll be a few companies that actually create really good progressive web apps that, that do work offline, but most won't. It, it'll be full of a lot of junk. And th there'll be a ton of instances where uh, you'll see, like, the CNN app brought to you by... You know, Joe Smith. Mm -hmm. You're just some regular person who says, oh, let me go embed that page. I'll make an app that yeah loads this website for and you. And they'll get some downloads. They'll get some ad revenue, yeah. and that happens. So I, I think that's a bad decision. But uh, I've totally digressed from what this article is talking about uh, because the other piece was Microsoft came out and basically said that Windows 10S is dead uh, because they're going to change it so that it's not its own software anymore. It's not going to be Windows 10S that you can take regular Windows 10 or Windows 10 Professional, and you can flip a switch to put it into a secure mode where it will only run apps from the Windows App Store. And so Ars Technica was reporting on that 
that basically you just take your Windows and you flip a security switch that says, I only want to allow apps to run that are in the App Store. Now, macOS has done this for years. In the, You can go into your App Store settings and say, or in the privacy and security settings and say, I only want to run apps from the App Store. Microsoft is just kind of following along. The difference being with macOS, it was always just a switch. With Windows, they tried to release a whole version of it. But they changed their pricing to make it where Windows cost more on high-end hardware and Windows cost less on low-end hardware. So the discount for running Windows 10S was basically gone. So nobody was motivated to use it. No vendors were lined up saying, ooh, we want to release a whole line of Windows 10S devices. So Microsoft saw the writing on the wall there and it basically eliminated it. I mean, was it originally also designed as a, a kind of a lighter version of Windows that it didn't take up as much space to be able to run on those kind of devices? Yeah, yeah, and that was that was the idea. And I've got um, Ars Technica had a really great table that they put up. I think this actually came from Paul Thorat, uh, but anyhow, it's, it's on Ars Technica uh, where they were showing like if you had a, uh, a Intel i7 processor, right, with a bunch of memory, greater than 16 gigs of memory they were gonna charge $101 for a full version of Windows. But if you had an Atom or Celeron processor and less than four gigs of RAM, so we're talking about things like, like Chromebooks, you know, they have these, these lower end processors and smaller amounts of RAM, that Windows could be licensed for as little as $25, right? Low cost. Originally, this stuff was being targeted to developing nations. And so they had special versions of Windows that were designed for those areas that just didn't have big economies. Well, now they're finding that people are buying Chromebooks left and right because if you're just checking your email and watching YouTube, you don't need a crazy system. So now I think Windows is trying to, to correct for that and say, let's stop losing market share here by just being a little more competitive on our pricing. And the nice thing is I think all of these chips will run Spectre um, natively. Um, you know, looking down the list, most of them are Meltdown compliant. Yeah, is so this a feature we're going to talk about? when you <laughs> So they're Meltdown compliant. Um, uh, yeah, all of them should do Spectre. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Uh, sticking in the Microsoft world now, uh, next up, this this is, this article frightens me. Um, because uh, so because we, you scare easily. I scare easily. <laughs> um, but we've talked in the past about uh, about biosensors and, and things to unlock phones and the, the face detection on um, on, on uh, the new iPhones and things like that. And, and I've always said that I will never um, use anything that has a retinal scanner because I've seen enough movies to know that that means my eyes will be removed. Um, now Windows uh, or Microsoft is saying no more uh, Windows 10 passwords. Microsoft says hello to Palm Vein Biometrics. So uh, I guess that means we're, we're not even talking about just like your palm print, but we're talking about the veins in your hand? <laughs> yes, we are. And... I thought that I was familiar with most of the biometrics out there, but this one was new to me. So this is, uh, you, uh, you learn something new every day. This mm -hmm. was something I learned uh, the other day. Um, but it works by looking at the, the veins, which are the, the, the blue lines in your hand, not the red ones, right? Red or arteries. What is it? Is, uh, veins and The red ones arteries. are bleeding, aren't they? Yeah, well, the, the red ones are oxygenated, <laughs> and the blue ones aren't, right? So the blue ones are the ones returning to your heart. Okay, I, I mean, it's yeah. not a science show. So no. <laughs> yeah, well, this week in science. It kind of is, but all right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so anyhow, apparently, and I, I didn't know this, but apparently the pattern of veins in your palm, which I keep holding mine up, like, hey, Internet, please copy mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, Here's my but, password, everybody. <laughs> but uh, apparently everybody's is unique, and okay. I, I didn't know that. Now, I knew fingerprints were unique, or at least 
pretty close. Uh, retinal scans are supposed to be even more unique, but then you're shooting laser beams into your eyes and people don't like that, sure. right? Um, so that's where this whole vein in the hand thing comes in is that who cares if you shoot laser beams at your hand? Uh, and so what they were showing was a sensor. Let me see if ZD, this is a ZDNet article. Yeah, they actually do show it. Uh, they have a picture where they show a person holding their hand above it. Instead of putting your finger on a fingerprint sensor, you just hold your hand above the sensor. And so it shoots up, I don't know, UV rays or gamma rays, turns you into the Hulk, does something. <laughs> uh, so it shoots up rays, cosmic rays, more than likely. Uh -huh, yeah. And uh, and then is able to see those, those veins in your hand and determine if it's you. So it's supposed to be really nice here in that you don't have to make physical contact with the system. You just hold your hand above it. Uh, it's built into your hand. Now, that's part of the story, or at least to me. If you, if you hadn't heard of this palm vein scan, that's news, right? But the other news part was that, uh, thanks to Windows Hello, Microsoft can use this to log you into Windows where this is the only credential you provide. So no password. You just sit down, hold your hand above the sensor, and go. All right. Now... I have questions, questions that I don't have answers to, which is the opposite of Radio Shack. Um, <laughs> although they're out of business, so they don't have answers either. Yeah, but um, uh, you know, it's the vein pattern, and veins are your unoxygenated uh, blood vessels. So uh, if you're dead, right, couldn't somebody just hold mm -hmm. your hand above the sensor? Or does that not work? I could do the same thing with my retina, so I don't. I, you know, again, it's know. it's it's a moot point for me because neither way, I'm I'm not doing it. But now I have to make that decision of <laughs> do you what, cut off your hand? Well, to what test do it? I give the hacker? You know, <laughs> my hand or my eye? That that's the choice that's I have to true. make now. I mean, what I liked about about the the face thing on the iPhone is that they can't take my whole face. I mean, I've seen I, Silence of the Lambs, yeah, but yeah. but <laughs> bone structure is going to change then, and 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 things like that. And I and I believe it gets into some eye stuff with the with the phone as well but i don't i, I know the the it's harder with it's the take a more secure with the windows hello cameras i know that they do temperature as well so they can tell if like somebody this is going to be our most morbid podcast ever <laughs> so tell um, if your weekend at bernie's well, it can tell if somebody's yeah. holding your cold dead head sure. <laughs> in yeah. front of the windows hello camera i tried to just say weekend at bernie's knowing that people would get that but you <laughs> and uh and with the 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 retinal ones uh apparently your eyes start to cloud over oh sure uh when they're no longer getting fresh blood and, and so uh they can detect that on this one, I, I don't know, since it's veins, I'm, I'm not sure. So um, either either one of our viewers has the science and will write in and let us know, or uh, maybe next week we'll just cut off one of Peter's hands. Yeah, and, uh, we'll and find out. We'll keep throwing it at the laptop and see if it opens. This can we can get a hand on eBay or something? Maybe. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. There's, uh, is there a, like a tour version of eBay? I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can get on that the dark sent net, the dark immediately. Web. Yeah, they'll, they'll do a scan of the dark web for you. Man, all I can find are yeah. severed hands with heroin. I can't find them without heroin. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I, I don't know if it'll check for that, but I, I want to know like what kind of camera can actually see the veins, you know, then, they, as opposed to just seeing the the surface. They, they say it in the article because I read it earlier, but I just can't remember, and I'm trying not to stare at it. But uh, oh, they did actually say this is something I forgot to mention that this is already built into the Fujitsu Lifebook and Stylistic Series Notebooks. That says they're um, using this in Japan with 80,000 employees that it has to yeah, be tested it, with. I figured it had to be overseas because I don't know anyone with a Fujitsu anything. <laughs> you, know, like, you just don't see that product here in the U.S. very much. But uh, uh, but this is already rolled out, and, and so we're going to see more and more of this coming around. I uh, It's great for germaphobes that don't want to put their finger down on a 
Well, on a device. Of course, you know, after you log in, then you gotta like type or use the mouse or something. It's not a Wii U. Uh, we'll, you can't we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and maybe I lied. I, I don't see where it tells the technology. Well, they're not gonna give you the secret sauce. Tell uh, you how that's it's done. true. Yeah, right, that's... I'm, I'm gonna guess here with my technical background that it's cosmic rays. Sure. Well, <laughs> sticking with the theme of things designed to frighten you, um, the uh, the Amazon Key service. So this is something I did. We talk about on on the show. We I talked about we the Amazon Cloud it. Cam because it the had a weakness. Cam. But okay. But oh, no, maybe we did talk but, about but the key. But this was similar to this. So so Amazon has this new service um, that they're touting. That I, I, I'm sure it's just in tests right now. I don't think it's it's really out there. But oh no, this is out there. Oh jeez. Yeah. But it's out <laughs> there in certain markets. No, you can buy one for your house right now. Well, but doesn't but the delivery driver has to have this? Oh, right. So, the, so. there isn't necessarily a delivery driver everywhere, but right. everybody okay. can. You can buy, buy it, but yeah. it's like New York and LA are in places where you can actually um, use. It. So, so basically, we're we're jumping ahead, but um, <laughs> there's there's a service where you could basically have a camera in your home and say you, you'll get a notification that my package has arrived, and rather than leave it on the porch for uh, anyone to drive by and steal, which is a, a big problem that, mm -hmm. that people face, you can uh, press, basically press a button and allow that UPS driver or um, which, whichever company to uh, then uh, access your door uh, through the key that is on, on your, um, uh, your Amazon key, and you can see them on the camera then come in, put the package down, and close the door behind them. So... Uh, you know that your package is safe and secure and that someone has been into your home while you haven't been there, which is just a nice feeling. Um, but this uh, this article from Tom's Hardware is talking about how hobbyists have demonstrated ways uh, or vulnerabilities, basically, in the system, which, um, in, in a just to sum it up, it's basically you're sticking chewing gum in the in the lock, right? And then the door can't close after they leave? Uh, sort of, yeah. You're doing that digitally. Um, so the, the Amazon key... It uh, uh, the way you described it was spot on when it was in beta, and then once it went into production, they actually changed it a little bit. Oh. Uh, in that you do get a notification when your package has arrived, but you don't have to take an action. Like the driver can walk up to the door, and once they're in proximity of the key, they have to be in proximity. They have their mobile app. They tap to the key, and it unlocks the door, so they can actually just unlock your door because they're supposed to be there delivering. And the idea is they open the door, they set the package down, and they leave. The door closes behind them. Now you get a notification when your door unlocks, and you get a notification when the door locks again, right? So what this hobbyist found was, hey, when it goes to lock again, there's an actual signal that's being sent to the door to lock it after a certain amount of time because they don't want to lock it while the driver's inside the house because it's going to unlock when the driver walks out, right? So they want to make sure that it locks after a few moments. So the, when the driver opens it, they have, I forget what the time is, it's like, two minutes uh, that they can get in, drop the package off, and walk off. Which is entirely and, too long. Hey, it's. I'm assuming that's the time for them to capture your dog and get it back inside. It depends on what kind of dog. Two yeah. minutes to <laughs> chase the dog around the neighborhood. But uh, uh, but what the, the hobbyist found, and you know, did they ever say the hobbyist name? I hate it when they don't mention somebody's name. Um, but what they found was that, hey, during this little window of time, you could do a wireless DDoS attack. You could just like blast the wireless and take it offline, and then Amazon can't send the lock command back down, and the door never relocks. Now, the driver's going to drop off the package, and the driver's going to walk away, right? So the driver did their job. They're done. They don't notice. And for us, the customer, if you're not watching out for that lock message, all you get is a timeout. And in fact, if you're not looking at your phone, you might even be confused, and you feel your phone buzz, and you just assume that's the lock message and ignore it. 
But meanwhile, an attacker could be waiting, and now your door is sitting there unlocked, and they're able to get in. And this is similar to a cloud cam vulnerability that, uh, that Amazon had where you could do a wireless DOS attack, and if you shut the wireless down, the camera would freeze on the last frame that it had. And so if your house was empty, it just looked like your house was empty. And burglars could break in, steal everything, and it wouldn't be on footage at all because the camera's not reporting back. So they did finally change that. So if you lose connection, it does display a black screen so you know that it lost connection. Uh, here with the key, they'll fix that if they haven't already and just say, like, if we don't get a message after this amount of time, we go ahead and lock anyway. Uh, and then that can't be denial of service. But it was another weakness. And, and we're going to see stuff like this anytime you have a, a new emerging technology. And, and the thing I always want to remind people is while the Amazon key is being presented as a, a uh, like a advantage or yeah, uh, whatever for you, yeah. it doesn't benefit you, not one single bit. It benefits Amazon, right? That if the package gets stolen, Amazon's going to have to ship you another one. So that's why they want to have this system. You get the inconvenience of, oh, they got to ship me another one. But at the end of the day, it's not your problem. It's UPS That's Amazon's and liability Amazon. and not, not UPS or FedEx? As the sender. Well, so it's up to Amazon to do the claim through mm. FedEx. Like you as the recipient can't do the claim. They have to. Sure. So, um, so it benefits everyone on that side of the transaction. It does. Yeah. So, you know, if, if package theft is not a problem for you, Technologies like this are not worth it. It's just not worth having. Well, you were asking uh, who the hobbyist is, uh, Don. If you if we want to bring up the article here, there's a link in there. It says to Twitter. Um, if you click on that uh, tweeting, uh, right. it's actually going to show a little video of this in action here, which is I know scary to watch a video on Twitter oh. without having uh, viewed it before. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is underscore M G underscore, oh, and that's uh, why they didn't say his name because yeah. it's like. And he also says at the bottom, uh, under this, he says, to preemptively answer the obvious obvious question of how, I'm withholding details until Amazon has had a chance to fix this. Mm. Uh, Rhino Security Labs uh, found an earlier uh, vulnerability on this lock, and the Amazon response was disappointing. So maybe putting this out there like this will actually get um, some good All response right. from, from Amazon on it. But uh, it basically walks through the process of, of how to, to execute this. Uh, huh. So... Um, well, the, the video won't play for me. I do think it's interesting. Though, I can see the watermark down here. This was recorded on a Nest camera. When you when you buy the uh, Amazon key, it comes with a cloud cam, but uh, apparently they're using. Well, Nest this is the camera outside. Oh and yeah. So, right, the so the camera for Amazon yeah. would be on the inside to see uh, yeah. that the package is there. Then, but uh, yeah, that video just does not want to play for well, me. Yeah, plays fine for me on my uh, MacBook Pro. Yeah, uh, you know, running you, regular old Sierra. If you're running high Sierra then maybe your video could not play like mine. Well, so. <laughs> you can watch that on your own time at <laughs> twitter.com slash underscore MG underscore, uh, which is the easiest username to say ever. All right, so... Um, on to the next. Yeah, on to the next. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, Chrome OS. We've talked about Mac OS and Microsoft. Now, uh, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention something Linux-related. Uh, and this one is... Uh, 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 interesting one, uh, definitely for us. I know we've talked about Kali Linux in the past mm -hmm. and whether or not you can use it as a daily driver. We had uh, Daniel Lowry come in and talk about that. But uh, Kali Linux has released 2018.1 uh, release, the best penetration testing distribution. And, uh, well, of course they'd say that. This is, isn't this Kali Linux's site? Yeah, yeah it's their know, site. But <laughs> <laughs> they, they think it's the best. And uh, I think we kind of think it is too, right? Yeah, they actually do have some good competition yeah. right now. There's a few other uh, pen test distributions that are out there. Um, Kali Linux is, has had a bit of an identity crisis this last year because uh, for years they, they were the 
the go-to distribution. If you were a pen tester and you needed quick access to your tools, this was the distribution you used. Uh, but now it's almost like half and half between pen testers and people who watch Mr. Robot. So, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people, they see Mr. Robot and they're like, oh, I want to be a hacker. I'm going to run Kali Linux as my regular OS, which is a terrible idea. I think uh, Daniel and I did a podcast yeah. on that a while ago. Like, I why you shouldn't that. do that? Um, and, oh, well, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm stuck in Groundhog's Day. Well, you were reading still. the article so, while I was saying it, so you'd know what to talk about. But, uh, uh, but for the pen testers that do still use it, these updates are pretty important, right? So this is the first update of 2018. They've updated a number of tools that are in there to the latest version. Um, they did some other things that are not such a big deal, like um, uh, the whole Meltdown Inspector fixes. If you're booting off of a Kali Linux distro off of like a live CD, you don't really care about Meltdown Inspector. There's not a lot there. But they have added some tools to be able to try and take advantage of Meltdown Inspector, and that you know it can, can be handy, but I find that you don't necessarily need a distro to be able to do that. Uh, they increased some memory limits, but the memory limits are already very, very high. Uh, now it's up to 64 terabytes of memory that it can address. Again, you shouldn't be running Kali Linux on a system with that much memory. There's not really any benefit to it. Uh, so most of these are minor things, but the package updates are important. Um, one thing that I did notice uh, is that they did some updating to the Hyper-V integration services. So if you're running Kali on top of Hyper-V, so for example, if you have a Windows desktop and you're running Kali in a Hyper-V VM, well, they have the native uh, integration services as a part of it. So it'll actually run better and it'll support uh, a few extra things on the network adapter. So, uh, so that'll be an upgrade that you want. But Otherwise, if you're booting off the live disk and you're not worried about Meltdown Inspector or you know testing for Meltdown Inspector, it's not that significant of an update in the general scheme of things. And we've already talked about version uh, and versioning numbers and things a couple times in this mm -hmm. uh, episode. So, so what they do is is just have the year and then dot whatever release it is for that year. So, is this a is this a a, a, a big update or is this just an incremental oh, no. update? So to it's uh, they do the year and then a, a, a dot and then. Um, this is the first release uh, of yeah, 2018. Yeah, and then one. Yep, so, yep. so last year it looks like they went to 2017.3. So they had three releases last year. Mm -hmm. So yep. do we know that? You know how like you know Windows will be at 10 and then 10.1.2.3 and there's the incremental updates and then the big updates. Do we know? Is this a a, a big update or is this just is so the next one in the because of the rolling release cycle they do? You don't really know when there's a big one. Okay, right. So for all we know, 2018.2 could be a massive update where they switch the base operating system, right? We don't know. That, that's the, the thing about rolling updates like this. With Ubuntu and, and distros like that, which, you know, Kali is based on some of this, um, but with Ubuntu, they do the year and a dot followed by the month. And uh, they always do their two releases in April and October. So you have dot four and dot 10. And dot four usually is a fairly big update. Dot 10 is usually smaller. And then even-numbered years are the biggest updates. Odd-numbered years are small, right? Uh, so that, that's normally how the other distros work. But with Kali, because it's just rolling, they, you know, they did three last year. Who knows how many they'll do this year? You just don't know. So that's why it's so important to read the release notes whenever something comes out. And in this case, this one's actually pretty small. You know, the, the, the updates that are a part of it, um, even the, the Linux kernel where it updated to 4.14, uh, 4.15 is either already out or going to be out in the next week. Uh, 4.16 is already in the works. So it's it's, it's just, um, I don't know, not, not all that critical. Yeah, but it sounds like definitely, like you said, read those notes so that mm -hmm. you make sure you're not going to run into compatibility issues if you're you know doing business applications on there. for If you're a professional penetration tester, you don't want to run into something like that. Yeah. 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 
All right, um, switching gears now to Cisco. I know we talked last week uh, in uh, week five of 2018 about uh, a critical firewall flaw, and we went through some of the, well, basically the um, uh, most important and you know, MVP mm. kind of uh, uh, products for Cisco that were all vulnerable in this. And uh, so we now have Cisco reissuing patches um, for that flaw because uh, there were problems when the patches went out, right? I'm trying to remember. Well, what, so what the, they, they pushed out patches because it, basically it was a, an exploit that targeted the SSL VPN functionality on, on Cisco hardware, and, and it applied to ASAs, routers, anything that, that ran that functionality, uh, and it was bad. Like, you know, if you took advantage of it, you could take complete control of the device, invalidating any encryption that it did. Like, you could get to the decrypted data. It's pretty much as bad as it gets, right? Um, so the uh, the score, like you know, they, they rank the scores on a scale of one to ten for severity, and this one was ranked a ten, and it's still ranked a ten today. So what Cisco did is they found that the patch they initially released, it did fix the attack as it was known then, but there have been two more methods found that exploit the same flaw, and the patch didn't fix them. So they had to push a second patch out that uh, took care of these other vectors. And there might be a third and a fourth version of the patch as time goes on as people find different ways to, to attack this. But the really significant thing uh, that goes in addition to this is that when we were talking about it last week, there was a vulnerability and a proof of concept, and they showed where this could be exploited, but it wasn't being used in the wild yet. Now it is. Mm -hmm. Now there are active worms and scanners running on the internet that are taking advantage of this vulnerability. So if you have not patched your system, you are absolutely vulnerable. And it is being taken advantage of, advantage of right now. So if you have a Cisco ASA, whether you've used the SSL VPN or not, if you have a Cisco ASA and it's plugged in with an internet connection, it needs to be patched. You need to patch it now, right? If you have a Cisco router or a 6500 series switch with the firewall blade in it, uh, you may not have enabled the uh, uh, the web S uh, the SSL VPN stuff, in which case you might not be vulnerable. Certainly wouldn't hurt to go ahead and patch and get that taken care of. Uh, also, the virtual firewalls, those are vulnerable too. The 1000Vs like get used in a lot of cloud systems. Um, those are really running the same OS as the ASAs, so they need to be patched as well. But it is being exploited. That's definitely what I wanted to mention this week so everybody knew. Stop dragging your feet. Get out there and patch them. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to also take a moment and, uh, you know, just tip of the cap to the hackers out there who were able to get these, um, you know, uh, <laughs> these exploits in the field uh, in such a short time. I mean, just talking about a week, that's good yeah. for them. You know, they're obviously using agile project management. Sure. And, uh, and Scrum. Yeah, because so, you got to be able to shift gears here as the vulnerabilities come up, and I know, I know. and move these things to the top of the backlog. <laughs> that hey, you know, we got a big one here. Um, and speaking of big ones, uh, this this is it, folks. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, California falling off of uh, the rest of America into the ocean, but this is the big one, uh, the biggest leak in history, uh, <laughs> according to someone. Uh, this is from Motherboard.com. Key iPhone source code gets posted online in quote biggest leak in history so this is it don right hey, it's, it's with, over with that uh, with that leading yeah uh, jonathan levin who is a uh, he's written several ios books and other things uh he he's the one who's quoted as saying this is the biggest leak in history uh it's not the biggest leak in history but it is a significant leak right so apple's ios is closed source right they don't want people to see that and if they could then people would know how to jailbreak and overcome a lot of their security features so uh somebody they still don't know who but somebody 
opened up a GitHub repository and uploaded the source code to um, what, what they call iBoot, uh, which is the boot firmware for Cisco, or for Cisco, for uh, Apple iOS phones. Now, at first glance, you see that and you're like, all right, if somebody has the bootloader code, then obviously they can figure out how to bypass the secure parts of the boot. There's things that happen during the boot up, like when it unlocks the uh, the security module that stores your fingerprint for Touch ID or your facial scan. You know that that stuff has to get unlocked at some point. And if you can take over the boot process, you might be able to get at that. But this could be bad, right? Um, and so when I first saw it, I, I, I was a little worried. Well, not too worried because I don't have an iPhone anymore. Yeah, sure. But uh, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but I was worried because so many people do, right? But once you started to read, you you learned a little more, like the fact that this is the uh, iBoot source code from three years ago, right? So if you've updated your iOS in the last three years, this is not really significant, right? Uh, but Apple, they came out, they came out real fast and said, hey, we don't normally distribute our source code. In this case, some of our source code got out. Uh, it's three years old, but you know what? There's no vulnerabilities in it. You, you can look at our source code. You're, you're not going to find anything. So Apple's really confident that they have done their due diligence and that this iBoot uh, source code is uh, is secure. Uh, it's been taken down. It's not on GitHub anymore, but plenty of people cloned it, and, and you can you can find it if you Google search for it. It'll take like three seconds, and you, <laughs> you can be a hacker too. So, um, but, but it's definitely not the biggest leak in history. It's not the iOS source code, as some blogs are presenting it. It's just for iBoot, just for the small portion of the boot process. Small but important portion, but nonetheless, uh, it's not all of iOS. That would be a bigger deal. Now, w would this, uh, though, be something someone could exploit to uh, hack into an older phone? Potentially. Uh it, if, if somebody takes that source code and is able to find a vulnerability in it, then, yeah, they, they would be able to apply that to any phone that was still running that older firmware. So... Um, People who have pay-as-you-go iPhones that don't buy data plans, mm -hmm. they don't usually update their phones, and they'd be vulnerable. Um, well, older phones that they don't have updates for anymore would be vulnerable. So I'm thinking back to uh, what was a big case probably two years ago, maybe three years ago now, when the San Bernardino shooting mm -hmm. uh, happened. Uh, there was a lot of talk about will, um, uh, will the FBI force Apple to... Uh, basically unlock this phone for them from the shooter so that they can access information and find out. Uh, and, and Apple fought back, and uh, a lot of debate about that, and ended up with a, a, a private hacker, if I'm not mistaken, uh, coming in and actually doing it for the FBI that the FBI hired. Um, but would something like this help the FBI? It could. Um, it would know, have to be older phones. Uh, in that case, with, with uh, uh, you know, the they never did actually reveal how it was how an Israeli it, yeah. firm, how the Israeli firm got in there. But um, there are people who have, have seen how that worked before, and a lot of them, it's it's not as graceful as you would think. What they do is they they take the the chip where the 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 private key is stored. When, when you boot an encrypted phone, there's a private key that gets unlocked, and then that private key is able to decrypt the the storage, and you get at the data, right? Uh, but that private key you can't get at it normally. And so what they would do is they would take acid and strip the top off of the chip that stores the data just to the point where they're able to get enough electromagnetic field off of that chip and then intercept that signal and wow. basically extrapolate the private key from it. Like it, it's a they physically destroy the phone when they do it. And but but they are able to get at that data and, and bring it out. So that's not like oh I uh 
uh, did a buffer overflow or something, and mm -hmm. you reboot the phone and it's back to normal. But here's how I got in. So um, you know those techniques are, are normally really really invasive. If there was a flaw in iBoot, it could lead to all sorts of uh, of things, but it just hasn't hasn't happened yet. Well, now that we we know that this is is not the biggest leak in history, I'm curious, Don, for your take. What what is the biggest leak in history for my, for my money? To give you a second to think about it, because I know mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm putting you on the spot here. I, I'm going to say the Titanic. You know, I was going to say the Titanic also. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the yeah. time, <laughs> uh, I think that's got to be it. Well, I mean, but, uh, there have been plenty of naval ships that have sunk though. Sure, um, over the years, or sank. Yeah. If I yeah, had good I, grammar, um, but you know, I mean, just from a sheer data perspective, though, like uh, there have been times when the Windows source code got leaked. Um, several video games have had their source code leaked, and like the actual code of the product, not just some boot firmware. Yeah. You know, so this was probably a quote they got within the first hour of the data being released because they they, they were breaking the story. Uh, Motherboard, they were the first to report on it, uh, and it is Vice.com. Um, but once you learn a little more about it, sometimes you have to go back and say, well, actually, uh, it's the biggest leak. In the history of iBoot leaks, <laughs> sure, yeah, and and it's something that a lot of people have wondered about for a long time, and so you know maybe just to get a glimpse of that is a it's a big win uh, for them. I, it was a Quentin Tarantino script that was entirely released. Oh I yeah, the that, Hateful Eight. Yeah, it was he, Hateful Eight. Yeah, yeah he and he was the ending. He was really angry. Yeah, pulled and, the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that that's a bigger leak. Yeah, me, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, all right, we got a couple fun things here to end. Um, this one's uh, not as much fun, but just kind of a little bit amusing here. Um, there's a, a service called GoGit uh, in Australia, and I think this is essentially uh, like Zipcars kind of uh, are here in the U.S., uh, where um, you're able to uh, do kind of a rideshare thing. But uh, an InfoSec researcher hacked GoGit to enjoy joy rides with his girlfriend. And I think that's that's nice. Nothing says uh, I love you like uh, Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> and uh, and this guy was caught. But but the reason that this is actually a story is because it um, it basically showed how this personal information from uh, from this go get service um, was also compromised as as part of this, and and uh, and was vulnerable basically. Yeah, and and this guy he wasn't just some random person, right? He was a security researcher. He had I think they mentioned in the article about how he had. Uh, found some vulnerabilities in Facebook and got bounty money for that. Uh, he had worked for the, the Australian government in, in uh, securing their MyGov site, so he had done a lot of work. Uh, and so here he was effectively stealing car use, and that's that's that slippery slope, especially where you have these these people that start as white hat hackers, you know, trying to help you find vulnerabilities. When they start taking advantage of them, that's when you know you've crossed the line and you go to jail like this guy. Uh, Thirty-three rideshares he stole. Uh, you know that's a that's a tangible item that you're taking. Uh, but because of the way that he broke in to do it, he had access to the entire customer database at the time. And so while he says, "Hey, I just booked free car rides," the reality is he could have dumped the entire database and. Could have leaked it online, sold it to the highest bidder. You know, there's a lot of stuff that he had the potential to do because he was in there, right? And and that's a that's a big problem. If he was doing it in the name of research, then he would have stolen one ride to see that he could do it and then turn that over. But he stole 33 rides. That's not research yeah. anymore. I want to make sure I can okay. still do it. Yeah, because uh, you never know. But this does make you wonder about those uh, people out there um, that are are hacking for bounties, basically. 
are they shopping that bounty first on the on on the dark web? We'll talk about it again yeah. um, to you know see who's interested there, and if well, I'm not getting any bites. Let me go ahead and see if I can get a bounty by turning it into Facebook or Cisco or or whomever. Or sometimes they do it the other way around. Is they see if they can get a bounty, and if they can't, then they turn around and sell it on the dark web. Uh, I'm going to get uh, paid one way or the other. And, yeah, and get rich or die trying. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, uh, and, which is interesting when you see things like going back to the Amazon key story that they're, uh, you know, this guy is saying, you know, we haven't gotten a good response to, from Amazon, so I'm going to, you know, put this out there for everyone to to know about, as opposed to, you know, he could have turned around and just said, I'm going to put this out there for, um, you know, these these bad actors to know about, but. Uh, either way, I think these guys know where we can get our hands on a, on a hand uh, yeah, to, yeah. to use. Some so vain we'll, uh, authentication. Look into that. And so, <laughs> uh, so finally, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Chrome extensions because, um, Donna, I'll, I'll let you uh, lead okay. this one because I know you were talking about the Chrome extensions have been in the news recently. They have. And, and you know, every week we try and pick out the, the more significant news articles. And I've started skipping over ones on Chrome extensions because they keep happening so much. Um, there's two big problems in the world of Chrome extensions right now, and, and I'm, I'm limiting this to Chrome because that's what I use, but it's really true in Firefox and other browsers as well. But uh, uh, what's going on is that if you have a malicious extension installed in your device, it can access everything you're doing on the web and it's unencrypted. Right? You can get at that data. So all of your banking information, your email, all the, when you type a password on a page, they can get at that data. So that's obviously not a good thing. Uh, what's tricky about these extensions is that they're largely unmonitored, and the way they do their updates and stuff is across the board. It, it's crazy, so it's hard for people to keep track of. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Um, there's two challenges as I see it. The first challenge is when you download an extension, they automatically update. So it's installed in your browser, and it might be 100% completely legitimate on day one. But then on day 300, Whoever runs that plugin sells it to another company. And that other company pushes an update out that has malware in it or displays advertisements or has a keylogger in it. Now, it was trustworthy up to that point. Your machine auto-updates, and now you've got malicious software on your computer, and you, you didn't even know it, right? It was just auto-updated. Everything looks normal to you, but now it's reporting back with a keylogger. And because it's a browser extension, this works on Windows, Linux, Mac OS, it's cross-platform. Uh, so that's a, that's a, a big problem there. Uh, that's happened more and more. There's an organization that's going around buying extensions. And what they'll do is they'll go to somebody who has a Chrome extension with 300,000 installs. And they'll say, look, I'll pay you $50,000 for your extension. But you got to sign an NDA, right? A non-disclosure agreement. So you can't talk about this deal. You can't tell anybody how much you pay for it or that we paid for it. And the developers sign the NDA. Well, then whoever acquired the plugin starts doing this malicious stuff, and the developer can't report it because they signed an NDA. If they report it, they'd be violating the NDA. They'd be breaking the law. And so now it's up to the general public to figure that out. And that's what keeps happening. Week after week, I keep seeing these Chrome extensions. And the majority of the problems all center around permissions. Most plugins have way too many permissions. So I had seen an article, um, President Trump, the entire United States government administration has been talking about fake news. Um, the media has been I'm talking about that. fake news. Yeah. The fake news has been talking about fake news. <laughs> and uh, it just won't go away. And the real news. And even the, the real news Invention talks it. about fake news. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So um, they've been talking about, boy, we need some way. 
that people can filter out fake news when they're browsing the web, so they're just seeing legitimate news sites. So there's a Chrome extension that does that, right? So I've got it pulled up here on my computer called BS Detector. And there were several well-known websites that, that recommended this, uh, you know, here's BS Detector. It's a little plugin. I'm actually running it up here right next to uBlock Origin. It looks like a little poop emoji. And uh, <laughs> it's sitting up there. And basically what it's doing is anytime I go to a web page, it runs it against a list to see whether that's a legitimate page or not. So if I go to CNN.com, for example, it's going to run that through a list, and everything's fine. This is real news. Well, I was right? told that that is fake news. You know, perspective, I guess, uh, really does apply to this. But uh, but anyhow, um, it's at least potentially real news. And then I can go to theonion.com and see how I got this big red warning up here. Warning, this may not be a reliable news source. And it even tells me here that it's satire, right? Or it'll say. And I found another one while, while we were looking here. It, uh, am I allowed to type it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Infowars. Infowars.com. Infowars.com. Let's go to uh, Infowars. Ah, conspiracy theory. Nice. Yeah, another, right. another little change there. So, oh, a, a new civil war has broken out, yeah. apparently. So you didn't know about that. I, I didn't know. Because didn't it's know. fake. Which side am I on? I don't, I don't, I don't even know what the battle is. Sure. So, anyhow, so it sounds like a good plug-in, right? So let me highlight the behavior that you need to watch out for in plugins like these that make them dangerous, okay? The first thing you need to look at are the permissions. So in, in Chrome, if you, you can really right-click on any extension, and you can go to Manage Extensions, and when you look at the extensions, you can hit Details, and it'll tell you about the permissions. When you install applications, you always need to look at the permissions. And look at the permissions on this thing. It says, read and change all your data on the websites you visit. So this plugin can literally read every single thing. It has to. It needs to know the site that we're going to, right? Not really. It just needs to know the URL. But that's not the permission. Whoever wrote this went the easy way. And they said, I could figure out the exact permissions I want, but instead, I'm just going to do the whole thing, right? And so it can read and change. They need to add that little red bar at the top, right? They can change it. In other words, I can go to the Facebook login page, and it could lay a transparent login field right on top of the login. And when I type in my username and password, I'm actually typing it into the plugin, not into the web page, right? I'm saying I trust these guys so much, I'll let them view whatever I, whatever I view, right? That's bad. If you look at other plugins, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, well, I'll leave it for right now. I'm going to remove it as soon as the show's over. Uh, well, this isn't my normal browser, so I don't really So, so I should remove but, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, so then, if you look at, like, I'm going to take the GNOME shell integration here. So that's a, another plugin I'm running. If I go into its details, its permissions, it says, read and change your data on extensions.gnome.org, right? It did scoping. It limited it down to a scope, and that's important. That's what good plugins do, and that's where a lot of these vulnerabilities are coming from is that the developer is being lazy with permissions, right? Let's go to the next part. The next part is, where does it get its list of sites? How does it know what's fake news and what isn't? Okay, well, they say on their site, we use open sources, which if you look that up, it's a commercially driven uh, product where, where uh, experts professionally curate a list of fake news, right? Well, they're really just doing it through GitHub. They have a GitHub repository, and you can pull up this list of fake news, and anybody can do a pull request to add things to it or can challenge to take things off. So sites that we might think of as fake news might have challenged to get themselves off of here already, uh, even though they are fake news. Here's where it comes from. Well, what that means is this plugin is relying on external data. So somebody could go and change this data 
and now your plugin is affected. If somebody were to take over this GitHub account, in effect, they could take over that plugin across all these machines. So anytime they rely on external data, that's a problem. And and you know this plugin certainly does that. And then the last thing that I, I want to point out, do they have the source code? If you pull up the source code for BS Detector, because I, I wanted to see, like, let me take a look at the source code. That's how you can find out uh, what a lot of this stuff does. And if you go to GitHub, uh, you'll find a few things on here. The first one, this is no longer the official repo, which is, and it points somewhere else, that means its ownership has changed hands, right? At least once, maybe more, but this is no longer the, uh, uh, the official repo. Last commit was over a year ago, December of 2016. If I go to the official repo, or at least what it's telling me is the official repo, I can see a new, a new set of people, and I can see that its last commit was February 10th, 2017. That's almost a year ago tomorrow. Yeah. This plugin's not being updated. Right, so there could be vulnerabilities in here, and and we don't know. Like these are all problems with the plugin. So every time I see a news article that has to do with Chrome extensions, it boils down to those three things, and so that's why we're not covering a lot of those. And so I thought I would just make it general and say, look, I don't care what the plugin is, if it's got excessive permissions, if it's relying on external data, and if it's not being updated you shouldn't be running that Chrome extension. And it's the wild west in the extension store out there. We, we've got to be careful with those. Well, it's funny. I have um, six plugins in Chrome um, that I use. All of them are enabled. And I just went down the list, and every single one of them says uh, that it uh, uh, it reads and changes all, all data on websites, including ones made by Amazon, uh, yeah. made by LastPass, made by uh, Pinterest. I have the Pinterest plugin. Yeah, <laughs> uh, TubeBuddy, which I use for for YouTube. So, uh, I mean, these are these are big company ones. These are not ones that are um, you know have poop emojis. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's it's concerning. But uh, I mean, I guess there's certain a level of trust with with some of these that you know. Yes, I I do trust you, Microsoft. Or I do trust you, Amazon, to um, be responsible with that data. But uh, you know, if it's some, something you haven't heard of before by a developer you haven't heard of. Yep, it does boil down to trust. Yeah, it, it, unless you have access to the source code, it, it boils down to trust. LastPass, you're trusting them with all your passwords. Yeah. So it's probably okay to trust them with your browser too. And you if understand you, why they need to be able to change data because they're they're writing into the mm -hmm. fields for you. Yep. So so you need to give them that, yep. that data. But, but on the Amazon one, for example, it's a wish list thing where I can take a product and say, I want to put that in my wish list. You're saying they, they basically took the easy way out development-wise where they could have gotten more yeah. detailed. And they're, they're scraping every page that you go to mm -hmm. and sending it back to their servers to say, all right, are there items that we sell here that you can add to a wish list, yeah. right? Uh, even if you're filing your taxes on a government site, they're scraping it. It's what they do. Well, if, someone, if I can put my taxes on my wish list and have someone else pay for them, I'm, hey, I'm happy to do that. Next year, we'll have Amazon Prime tax returns oh, in two days fantastic. or less. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to be in a postcard, I heard. Too. And they'll use the key to open your front door and drop the check right there inside That's your door. fantastic, yeah. <laughs> and take whatever they want as, as, the, uh, as the tax payment. We're just going to take this lamp and this vase, and you are now set. All right, well, a lot of good stuff. And, and I like that we're back to the kind of podcast where afterwards I'm scared. <laughs> and, uh, and, and want to go uh, destroy all the electronics in my home and move off the grid. So uh, that's what I'm going to do after this. But uh, for now, it's going to do it for this podcast. So be sure to subscribe, share, uh, like it, and tell all your friends about the amazing IT Pro TV podcast. And um, and Don's been getting on me again to to have a good close um, for the the podcast. So for now, I'm, I'm just going to go with 
Uh, we'll see you next week, and that's not fake news. <laughs> you know, we, we should start endorsing a product right at the end. You know, oh, like, yeah. uh, by the way, we make money every time you buy an Amazon key kit. Jump Ex- right over. <laughs> yeah. I, if, if we're endorsing the Amazon key, I don't think we've done a very good job in this episode. So, uh, so yeah, but please put the Amazon key on your home so we can come and take all your stuff. And a Foscan. <laughs> we'll see you next time. 